Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Dead and Married. I'm your host, Travis. Yo, what's up? I'm Ashley. We're kind of like Thing 1 and Thing 2. <laughs> the so, deadly duo. <laughs> so this week, we're going to do Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Oi. That's our movie. <laughs> and I think we both have some mixed feelings. I really, really have a bone to pick with you <laughs> this I was, week. <laughs> I was not optimistic about this movie going into it, but there were actually some things that, after I watched it, I don't dislike him as much as I did. Uh, and I think you had an event horizon moment. I did. So you guys remember me talking like last week or the week before about how much I I love this movie. And I'm usually leaning on the side of somebody who does love this movie. Uh, That might have been altered after this viewing and the note taking process. Yeah, I, I kind of had it wasn't quite the same revelation that I had on Halloween three. Uh-huh. Where the more I watched it, the more I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty good. I kind of like that. But there are parts of this movie that I actually like, hmm. and and we'll, I'll talk about them as we get to that. But okay, I just I just want to state for the record that. I still don't hate this movie, but watching it with a more objective eye this time, I found <laughs> I found things I don't like about it now. I think there's a big difference, especially well for me. For me, there's a big difference in sitting through these movies and, and taking notes and really looking at the lighting and the cinematography, like really getting into the movie and really paying attention to it uh-huh. and just doing, you know, the Halloween movie marathon in October. Every right. year. There's a big difference. I feel like I've been a lot more critical of these movies than I was in the past. Well, in the past, I'll be honest, I just didn't care. Yeah. You, you put them on and I did something else. So I have this theory, okay? Like, I've mentioned it to you the last couple of weeks, like, because, you, you know, we brought it up before that you kind of turned a corner in this series where before you didn't care for it and now you're kind of like actually really getting into the series and I would you know there for a long time Jason was your favorite titan and I would say that he's been dethroned at this point because you actually really like Michael now and so I've been I've been thinking like who is this guy where did my husband go and so I just had a revelation a few minutes ago where I'm like this has all been ruse like (laughs) okay (laughs) keep with me for a minute this whole oh I'm enjoying these horror movies now has been a very deep fake out so to get me to study them really hard and make me go I don't like that I don't want to watch that anymore and then you're like yes job done (laughs) I've been discovered (laughs) you figured out my master plan was my plot all along because I kept thinking I didn't have a good time watching it this time and I'm like that really sucks you know I don't want to watch this in the future and be like oh I don't want to watch this one You know, I want to be able to continue to watch the series and think of Six as a, you know, not a highlight, obviously, but, you know, one of the better in the franchise. You know, um, of the of the latter entries, that is. Of the, the Thorn trilogy. Of the Thorn trilogy, yes. But do you still feel that way? No, I mean, I never felt that way. I always thought four was the best of the Thorn trilogy. Hated five, but thought six was okay. I mean, because don't get me wrong, there are things that they did get right in this movie. I would say more so with the producer's cut, which we're not going to cover today, but we'll touch on things here and there. But there were, I found myself getting really annoyed at some of the character choices in this film more so than I used to in the past. Yeah, I did have an issue with some of the acting in this movie, but I try not to be shitty about an actor's performance. Right. Just because I'm not an actor. I've never done it. I don't know 
how hard it is, so I feel like it could be really easy to criticize it. I feel like some of the performances in this movie were a little wooden, I guess. Stunted. They were, were kind of stiff. Yeah. But I'm not going to name names because, I don't know. I, I well, feel like, you, you, I feel like we can me, name names without being dicks about it, though. They think, you think you can do it, right? It's one of those things where they think that how hard is your job. Right. But I think if somebody put a camera on you and said, okay, now you have to be scared, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I just I, automatically I just, started thinking about that line, and this is the end when Craig Robinson is talking about, like, acting is hard. Like, you, you gotta be on, on the beach when it's cold, talking about everybody surfing. <laughs> oh, I thought you were gonna tell me to take my panties off. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wearing any. <laughs> Which, guys... Give us a quick opinion, okay? We we were actually debating. We were watching This is the End last night, and I'm going, okay, yes, I know this is a comedy, but it's also a horror movie. And so I've been wondering, should we cover this or not? So give us your opinions. <laughs> I think if we tried to cover that movie, the MPAA would give us an X rating. <laughs> NC-17 at best. There's no way we're getting that one down to an Not R. with that much dong in a movie. No. <laughs> No. I mean, you know, the only thing I, I wonder about that movie is, are they acting? Is Backstreet really back? No, no, they're they're not. They're gone, and if my prayers come true, they'll stay gone. But, but no, you know, the, the interaction between those actors, obviously those guys have acted in tons of movies together. Yeah. But are they really acting, or are they just on camera being themselves? I would say that, like, 95% of that movie is probably... Uh, ad-libbed yeah i think so too but, but anyway we're getting we digress. Off topic here. <laughs> but just yeah let us know let us know because i kind of really want to cover it now <laughs> <laughs> that would be one that the kids could never ever 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 listen to right <laughs> ever <laughs> he's but, giving me eyeballs here guys yeah. <laughs> like ever <laughs> we would have to like put that one behind a paywall or something so anyway Halloween 6. Back on topic. Halloween 6, Curse of Michael Myers. But that was not the original title, right? Right. Because I think I remember, and you know you remember. I know I remember. Seeing the trailers that said Halloween 666. The origin of Michael Myers. So that was like the working title, I guess. Yeah. And then at some point during production, the writer jokingly called it the Curse of Michael Myers because they were having so many problems with it. Yeah. And it was a joke, but the producers thought it worked, so they just stuck with it. Right. Not realizing they had nabbed names from pink panther movies <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't know if that was intentional or if it was a happy accident know. but, but you know what if you just i would probably rather watch the pink panther movies <laughs> <laughs> but uh. anyway so this movie was made in 1995 with a budget of estimated budget of about five million dollars and their return was only 15 million Mm-hmm. I mean, they tripled it, right? If that estimated budget's correct, mm-hmm. that feels like that's still not much for a movie, right? I mean, I don't know. I, I can't. You can't compare this like to the MCU or anything like that. But it just feels like the return on a lot of movies is higher than that. <laughs> it's not the worst. I mean, it's it's close to the bottom. Uh, in terms of revenue, but it's it's not well, any, anywhere close. What to I the find worst, funny but. is, you know, they're talking about. At this point, the slasher genre was pretty much dead. But Scream came out only a year later, and it was like, oh my god, where has this been? And it's like, mm. 
Well, so I, I'm confused on that. I think that the audiences were tired of it, honestly. I mean, this was Halloween 6 was one of the ones that I think they released this movie at the same year that a Friday the 13th came out. And the Friday uh, the 13th movie took them out. I may be getting those wires crossed, but there was three years in a row there where both franchises released well, a movie. Well, okay, they're kind of in the mid-90s. And I don't know if it was 3, 4, and 5 or 4, 5, and 6, where those were the only times where they released a movie at the same time where Friday the 13th performed better. I don't know. I, I know they're kind of like early to mid-90s, would you have uh, Jason Goes to Hell, and then you had uh, New Nightmare, which I would think, sorry, everybody, I, I in my opinion, Trump's scream on all levels, but for some reason, it just, I don't know, it just didn't perform well, and, it, and to me, I mean, people would say, you know, Scream took what New Nightmare did and did it better, but... I don't know. It's it was it was a very cerebral film, you know, and and people didn't want that in their slashers at the time. So I think that's you know why that failed at that particular moment. But yeah, I just I just it boggles my mind. I guess maybe it was because it was you know all the hot teens at the moment or something, and that's what people needed instead of you know what we got with those other Friday the Thirteenth. Because by that time they're all adults. There's no more teens. There's no more drama. It's it's adult people, adult problems you know in this scenario so I don't know I just I, I can't I can't figure out why a year made such a difference I guess I think people were just tired of a cod's formula maybe because it worked well in 78 which that wasn't his formula in 78 right that right. was John Carpenter's movie and then they got away and then he reeled them back in this is this is how we make Halloween movies but if you look at where Friday the 13th was going at that point in time every year it was more blood more boobs more crazy kills you know mm-hmm. but they just kept sort of raising the, the more, bar the more these franchises went on the less they became of what they started with right and Nightmare on Elm Street of course you're dealing with a, a dream killer dream demon I don't know where that you're dealing with Freddy and since it's dream based you can just keep getting crazier with that. I mean, any anything is possible. Mm-hmm. And so you get Freddy being Freddy, you know, throwing jokes and welcome to primetime, bitch. You know, your your effects can really take center stage in a movie like that. And Halloween just sort of tried to reel it back into what fans wanted in 1978. And that's just not what they wanted in 95. Right. And then I think that probably Scream did so well the very next year because they're making fun of this movie. Not this one specifically, but the slasher formula. That's the whole premise. Right. And I think people were tired of of the slasher formula that's the reason scream did so well right and and i was thinking about that with remakes the other day i was watching a review on uh the friday the 13th remake from 2009 which i hate and i was thinking the exact same thing i'm like it's taking this thing that we are supposed to feel like are the normal tropes from those movies but they're not you know yes you can go through the friday the 13th series and see breasts and sex and all that stuff but for some reason, you know, with this more reality, gritty, you know. Well, people can't watch a slasher movie now without immediately thinking of Scream. And I think that audiences now, because Scream happened, people tear those movies apart. Um, I was thinking of Zack Snyder, you know, what he did for the DCEU. And it was like, take this thing and make it more realistic and gritty. And I feel like horror remakes basically did the same thing. But in trying to make them more realistic, they felt unrealistic. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I could see that. You know, like how, like we were talking about Rob Zombies last week, his take on Halloween, like all of his movies basically saying that all people are white trash or whatever. Okay, but that's just not really reality. Let's be honest, though. The opening to his movie with a a completely dysfunctional family with a, uh, he wasn't a father figure, he was the boyfriend or whatever in in this, that's probably more realistic. Mm. 
Honestly. I mean, it happens more often than a serial killer just popping up out of nowhere in 1978. Does that make sense? But again, and so part of what made Halloween 78 so much scarier was taking a neighborhood that you wouldn't expect this to happen in. I totally you know? agree. But I would also say that if they had never made Halloween in 1978 and they made it now and released it next year, it wouldn't do well. I just don't think it would. I don't think it would be flashy enough for today's audiences. Your hardcore horror fans would probably love it, but it still wouldn't be a mainstream success. I don't know. I feel like the movies that we were getting now with like Aster and Eggers, they are more understated. I don't feel like they're flashy. Sure, the cinematography is better and is more visually pleasing to the eye, but they're still very subtle. You know, they don't have to have this giant thing. And I would say that's why these guys are successful now because some of us, and especially, you know, that we're adults, we don't have to have, you know, the as, as much as I love those movies, we don't have to have the Eli Roth shock stuff no, anymore. No, but I would say that even with those, their ideas are way more out there than Halloween was. Yeah. The, the premises. Yeah. Because you think about it, Halloween's very, very simple, and that's, to me, what made it good in mm-hmm. the first one. Mm-hmm. It's a guy with a knife and a mask. That's it. Like, all the movies that you just named, way more complicated. They may be understated, and they may not have, well, like, that the was big my, visuals and all that, that stuff. That was my argument for Halloween being successful now. Way more complex than what the original Halloween was. I just don't think that audiences now, if it was released as a new movie, movie i don't think they'd bite hmm. i don't but. know i don't know i i don't think i i disagree i respectfully okay. disagree at any rate <laughs> They sure as hell didn't bite on Halloween 6. Um, On IMDb, it's a 4.8 out of 10. Metacritic gave it a 10. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 9%. This is the worst movie we've done so far. I might have changed my voodoo rating for this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Rotten Tomatoes. This is the lowest Rotten Tomatoes score movie we've done so far. Yeah. I had, because I always rate our movies after I watch them, and I had it at sitting at a 4. And after we got done this go-round, I took it all the way down to a 3. Yeah, traitor. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So the critics didn't like it either. Jack Matthews with the LA Times said that it's just the latest in in a numbing series begun in 1978. Uh, Mike may be getting older, but he can still sling a knife around like a chef at Benihana. Uh, Stephen Holden with the New York Times said it's easily the most inept episode in the series. Mark Savlov with the Austin Chronicle said far away and one of the most tedious, uninspired offerings offerings so far. And Christopher Knoll at filmcritic.com gave it the best rating, the best criticism. He said, ah, skip it. That's that's what it's that's what it said. So you've got some returning cast. Uh, well, one. one. You've got one. <laughs> one re- a couple of returning characters, but only one really returning cast member, unless right. you count Win. That's still a different actor. It is a different guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So directed by Joe Chappelle. The writing credits. Of course, they credit Deborah Hill and John Carpenter for the characters, and then it was ri- actually the screenplay was written by Daniel Ferrans, which. He was super disappointed. They basically told him run wild. Mm-hmm. They didn't give him any guidance on what to do with this other than go back to basics. And then they didn't use any of it. And I actually, you know, people give Daniel Farrens a lot of crap for this movie. I actually really, really like him as a documentary filmmaker. He's made a couple of my favorite doc- documentaries, uh, Never Sleep Again, The Nightmare on Elm Street, like four or six hour long documentary. And then he also did uh, Crystal Lake Memories, which is also another fantastic documentary. Well, he's the one that had what they call it the Halloween Bible. Yeah. For for five, and mm-hmm. they had actually, I guess, interviewed him to be the writer for five. Which I, with that director, it might not have mattered who wrote it. Right. But Akkad kept his notebook 
where he had documented like all the characters, how they interact, how they're related, all the everything since 1978. Like he had the complete okay. record of Haddonfield and the Strodes so, and the Myers. The fact that he did not give that back, it's like the water boy all over again. <laughs> he didn't give his playbook back. Yeah. I know. <laughs> It's like, he bitch, you better him. give that back to me. <laughs> but when he went into interview to do six, when Franz went in to do six, Akkad still had his dusty asshole notebook laying on his desk. So we're going to take all of your ideas. Well, I guess they didn't because if they had used any of his ideas, five might have been a better movie. I don't know. But there were a ton of different writers on this script and people that, I guess, wrote shit. Daniel Fran's script is not represented by this movie. Yeah. There's some interviews with him, 25 Years of Terror, in the Scream Factory documentary, Cursed Curse. And then he did a, a very lengthy interview on HalloweenMovies.com, which is, I've learned, the official Halloween movies website. And the movie that we got is not the movie he wrote, the theatrical version. It's also not the producer's cut. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know why they bothered to pay a writer for this movie, because they didn't use anything that he wrote down. Just a waste. Anyway, so uh, cast, Donald Pleasance returns as Dr. Loomis, and I promise I will try harder to get his name right in this one. <laughs> I kept calling him... <laughs> Donald Loomis and the last one. But let's be honest, they're one and the same. I mean, when you see Donald Pleasance, it doesn't matter what movie you see him in. You go, there's Dr. Loomis. That's just who he is to me. Except, well, now I'm going to see Dr. Evil and say there's Dr. Loomis. (laughs) But... Anyway, uh, Marianne Hagen plays Kara Strode. Kim Darby plays Deborah Strode. Keith Boggart plays Tim Strode. There's too many Strodes in here. (laughs) Leo Getter plays Barry Sims. Devin Gardner plays Danny Strode. George Wilbur returns as The Shape. And I've got some opinions about his performance in this one. We'll get there. Don't worry. This was Paul Rudd's... I would say feature film premiere, but I don't know that this was considered a feature film. I think they actually say that Clueless was his feature film premiere. No, it it is technically this one. But yeah, this first movie he was ever in, he plays Tommy Doyle. Mm-hmm. And he did a pretty good job, sort of. <laughs> the more I watched it, the more I felt differently about that. We'll get into it. 60% of the time, Paul Rudd works every time. <laughs> Mitchell Ryan plays Dr. Wynn. Bradford English plays John Strode. And for the life of me, I... I didn't look at his his uh, filmography, Bradford English. Uh, I don't like that guy. I've seen him in a lot of stuff, and I think he's a dick in everything I've ever seen him in. Well, I rewatched uh, not that long ago um, Higher Learning, and he was a racist cop in that movie. And I thought, oh, that seems about right. That's a dick dad from Halloween Six. <laughs> yeah, you know what though? I've I've sort of had a change of heart about that. When you see an actor, and you're like. You don't like them as soon as they get on screen or you love them as soon as they get on screen, even though you don't know really what their part is in that movie. I think that's really just a testament to their acting ability. That could be said. (laughs) I mean, think about that little shit from Game of Thrones. Like, I would have wanted to choke him in real life. I mean, he's probably a nice kid. Yeah. You know, the Lannister kid? You know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. So I think maybe he was just a really good child actor because I really didn't like him. (laughs) But anyway, Mariah O'Brien plays Beth. J.C. Brandy is Jamie Lloyd, which was a whole bag of worms. Susan Swift plays Mary. Janice Nickerham plays Miss Blankenship, which was supposed to be a character in the first one. Something like that. She was babysitting somebody when Michael killed his sister. They never show that. They bring it up here, I guess to try and make some obscure tie-in to the first Halloween. Uh, Hilder Verickis plays Dawn, and there's some other people in here. I was going to say, I think you've given way more than we need here. I've exhausted the people that I'm going (laughs) to know when we get to them. But Michael Lerner, a Michael Lerner, 
played an additional shape during reshoots. So he's actually credited here on IMDb, but I don't know that he was in the one in the theatrical version at all. Mm -hmm. So it was produced by Malik Akkad, Mustafa Akkad, and Paul Freeman, and music by Alan Howarth and Paul Rabjohns. Travis, Travis. What? Let's get into it. Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry he turned out to be such an asshole. And now that our tech wizard is done, (laughs) let's jump into it. You know what? (laughs) You want me to do my research. I've got to do my research. And now it's time for your obligatory spoiler warning. We don't just spoil movies here. They are spoiled rotten. So listen at your own risk or turn back now. Michael Myers has come back to Haddonfield. So guys, bear with me tonight because I'm going to try things just a little bit differently because this movie, its pacing was all over the place, I felt like. Certain scenes are super short, others are unbearably long. I I don't understand some of these choices in editing. Yeah. Because yeah, they let some stuff go on way too long and there was a lot of stuff where I, I wanted to see a little bit more, especially where Michael and Donald Pleasance are concerned and they just didn't. Yeah. So we start with a voice saying, Uncle Michael, please don't hurt me. And we open on what we know, you know, if she's saying Uncle Michael, we know it's Jamie and she's being gurneyed through this hall. She's in labor and they take her to this room, this like, I don't know what you'd even call this bullshit. It's like some kind of ceremonial chamber. Yeah. So we're led to believe that this is at Smith's Grove. Yeah. Yes. But it's well, clearly I don't got, think they really reveal that it's Smith's Grove until the end, right? But I mean, it's clearly got like rough brick walls, there's an altar, there's statues, there's a ceremonial sacrifice slab in the middle of it. It looks like a cave. If that's the case, there's an entire complex of tunnels under there. Nobody knows about it, or are they all in on it? I think they're all in on it. How did Loomis not know about it? He worked there for 20 years, yeah. But we see that she's giving birth, and um, once the baby's born, we see a ceremony being performed on this baby, and while they're painting the thorn symbol on his tummy and blood. We get a voiceover from Paul Rudd. And, you know, of course, at the time, we don't know that he's supposed to be Tommy. But nonetheless, we get his voiceover basically explaining Michael's history of killing Judith. And, you know, they he kind of cuts to the point where after part five, you know, the police station explodes and Jamie's, you know, they say that Jamie and Michael have disappeared for however many years at this point. Yeah, this is a sequence that I think went on way too long. This opening piece, particularly Jamie screaming as they wheel her down the hall. (laughs) Well, as someone who's had three babies, I did not find her labor believable. (laughs) Well, I think... That's a hard thing to do, though, for sure. There's This is one of those sequences where I feel like they were just padding their runtime. Maybe. Well, there's... There's lots of those. But anyway, after Jamie's had a trying birth, you know, it couldn't be easy at 15 years old, which she is now. We see her sleeping and the nurse who delivered her baby comes and apparently has had a change of heart because at first when Jamie had the baby, she handed the baby over to the man in black. But now we see that the nurse has brought her the baby back and she's telling her, save your baby. And so then Jamie tries to escape. Yeah, she says, come with me if you want to save your baby. Come with me if you want to live. Yeah, like Terminator 2 style. (laughs) Anyway, so Jamie... Jamie starts trying to escape and the nurse is kind of, I guess, trying to get back to the other doctors or people, cult, whatever. And, but we see the shape come out of the shadows and he grabs her by the throat and he lifts her up off her feet as he does. And he impales her head 
on this wall spike? That's, that's something I don't understand is that I get, you know, if they've got their secret, if they've got the, uh, what do you call it? The layer of doom, the <laughs> temple of doom underneath Smith's Grove, that's going to have some weird shit in it. But this looks like a normal hallway yeah. with ran with, well, they're actually evenly spaced spikes going all the way down the hallway. Yeah. What purpose did those serve? They're coat hangers, it's clearly. A, it's an all-purpose people hanger <laughs> is what it is. But I will say, seriously, I really like Michael in this sequence. Okay. Don't give me that look. <laughs> Here's the... Okay, bear with me. He comes out of the shadows. You don't see him coming. He appears. He kills. He studies his work. And then he moves on. Okay, I will say... His movements are smoother. Much smoother in this one than they were in the last two. Uh, Okay, we're still not at number one. He's still not Nick Castle. But I think with this kill, Wilbur did a better job than he did in his previous movies. Yeah. Okay. But... Yeah, I, I would say that that is more accurate with his personality to, to do the stop and studying his work and stuff. But Jamie, she does end up getting away. And we get, we've had the same guy score all of these movies, Alan Howarth. But this time he put a different spin on it. And I don't know if this is because post-grunge era, there were some choices made in this movie for sure, where they thought they needed to add electric guitar to the Halloween theme, and I'm not a fan. I don't know that I like it. Yeah. I don't think it was a good change. I mean, you could say in part three, they added the synth element to the score, but I felt it worked for the subject matter, you know, with it being, you know, grounded in this... Well, it was kind of a a sci-fi type movie. Yeah. They're exploring technology of clockwork androids and shit. Yeah. So I I get that choice, but to me, this felt out of place. For me, it dates it. I think they could have done better just to use the original. Yeah. Honestly. And in the producer's cut, they actually do that. And I thought that that worked a lot better. Yeah. It's just a piano, right? Yeah. But Jamie manages to escape Smith's Grove, but Michael is, of course, in pursuit. And she ends up finding a near nearby truck where this guy is randomly drinking in the rain. Yeah. You got a drunken redneck. So the actress <laughs> actually caught hypothermia filming this scene. They had to put off filming for a couple of days so she could recover. Okay. So the the owner of the truck, he starts ye- yelling at her and stuff, but then we see Michael pop up and twist this dude's head where, I mean, the spinal column is left sticking out. Um, so brutal kill, obviously. I, li- I like this kill. <laughs> I like the sudden drunken redneck kill. Because <laughs> same thing, he, he just kind of sweeps in out of the shadows. He's like a shark. He's like he's supposed to be. He, he just He's headed towards his objective and he just kills quickly and moves on. Yeah. I like it. But we, uh, Jamie then, of course, takes his truck and leaves. And then... How does she know how to drive? <laughs> She's 15 years old. Well, actually, this actress is like 23, but... The same way that Michael just I mean, magically is, knew how to drive away in the first one. Myers's <laughs> are just genetically predisposed <laughs> to driving? I guess. It didn't make any damn Maybe sense. Maybe someone around there gave her lessons. Sorry. While she was <laughs> chained in their Temple of Doom? <laughs> I don't know. Plot hole. The Haddonfield Legion of Doom. But we cut to a Strode Realty sign with this old sticker on it. And we pan up to the Myers house, which again, not the same house um, because this was again filmed in Salt Lake City. And it's green now. It's not the it's same still, house, but, but it feels better than the last one. Yes, it's, it's closer aesthetically wise to the original house than that weird fucking castle the, the gothic mansion <laughs> yeah castle myers <laughs> yeah castle grayskull <laughs> which they do a much better job setting this the exterior scenes in this movie i feel like it feels like it's fall yes that was that is a thing that i do appreciate about this movie especially coming off of five that had like no no halloween feel to it at None. all no, but they yeah. got they got the leaves, they got the wind, they got 
it looks cold, I guess. Yeah, well, overcast. that's my thing. If, if you're going to set a movie in the fall, in Halloween in particular, you know, I realize here in Texas our Halloweens are pretty fickle. Like, one year we may have a cold Halloween. Another one, you know, it's 101 degrees and hot as balls out. But when I think of Halloween, I think, you know, crisp autumn air and maybe some rain. And uh, Yeah, but in Texas we have 360 days of summer and five days of... <laughs> something else <laughs> of just cold yeah but i just felt like this was better I feel yes like they did it better this time yes i i did i did appreciate the look of this one more there's for a scene sure. there's a scene later though where it shows like it's either a birch or an aspen tree yeah <laughs> and mountains in the background so obviously they're not in illinois yeah so i had to look and see where that was filmed because when i think aspen trees my mind automatically goes to colorado so yeah and they were white bark. I don't know which one it was. It could yeah. be either one. But the mountains in the background give it away. Right. It's not Illinois. Yeah. But it actually, it looks like that. And it looks cold because it was cold. It snowed the day before they started shooting. So that makes me wonder, you know, they filmed, filmed Candyman in Illinois. So could they not actually try to film one of these in Illinois? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why they chose to film all of these. All of them, except for the first one, right? Yeah, because the well, first one was filmed in Pasadena. All three of the Thorns were filmed in Utah. Utah. And yeah. I don't understand that. I don't know. Maybe it was to cheaper to film there. Maybe it was the Georgia of its time, I guess. <laughs> well, there's a, they in one of them they had filmed, was it part three, around Ogden, Utah, which apparently is a very popular filming location. I thought part three a, was still in California. Maybe it was. Maybe I'm thinking about number four. But apparently yeah. Ogden, Utah, is a, they've filmed a million movies there. I don't know why, but... But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was from, from four on where yeah. they were on Utah. But we hear a voice saying Danny as a little boy wakes up from a nightmare, and it's a very bizarre nightmare because it's all these quick cuts of Michael and Jamie and the man in black and stuff and he wakes up screaming and he sees the man in black in his room and his mom Kara comes in to check on him and he says that the voice man is in there but you know she looks around she doesn't see anybody and he says that he's says bad things to him but when she asks him what does he tell you he's like um and you know typical kid <laughs> yeah <laughs> and she decides to go you know she tells him good night she goes back to her room uh, before grabbing or you know she grabs a drawing of his off the wall on her way out and in her room she's looking at the drawing and it's of course the thorn symbol which if our kids coloring a thorn symbol I'm like cool <laughs> but you know not in this movie not in this context but um as she's getting ready for bed and listening to local shock jocker Barry Sims, she notices somebody spying on her through her window. And she it's in the house across the street and she pulls her curtains closed and the guy just kind of stays there lingering on her. So we're like, okay, what the fuck? What is, you know, what is this dude? Or whatever. And he is also listening to the same radio program she is. Apparently all of fucking Haddonfield is listening to this one radio station like there's not any others. Yeah, that so. doesn't make <laughs> sense to me at all and they had originally wanted to cast uh howard stern to play this shock jock mm -hmm. and while i think he would have been more entertaining than the character the, the person they cast yeah you're not gonna hear howard Stern's show playing everywhere yeah in the bus station in your house in i mean i don't know maybe there's only one radio station in haddonfield well uh, to be fair this guy did a really good job playing an asshole i remembered him from silent night deadly night but 
his part was very minor, you know, no big deal. But he actually, I, I thought he was pretty convincing dickhead. <laughs> so, but we then see Tommy. Oh, sorry. Yeah. This guy who's spying on Kara across the street. This is our Tommy Doyle played by Paul Rudd. And he is now calling into the radio station telling of his own encounter with Michael when he was eight years old. But he was lucky because he survived. This is a scene that does not make sense to me. If, if Tommy is a recluse, you know, living in somebody's attic, being a peeping Tommy on his <laughs> across the street neighbor. I see what you did there. Yeah. Why would he call into a radio station? Is he the crazy Ralph in this movie? <laughs> I mean, because that's what he does. He calls in. He's doomed. You're all doomed, right? Yeah. Well, because he tells them that Michael's work isn't finished and that this time he'll be ready. And the longer this movie went on, did you notice Paul Rudd's voice? Like his intonation and pronunciation was weird. Well, I took this as, okay, it's his first role and maybe, you know, he's just not a great actor at this point. Not Obviously not the Paul Rudd we know and love today. Mike Crapbag, but still... <laughs> I I believe I believe I heard that he was kind of given the direction to act the way Donald Pleasance would. And after I heard that, now I can't watch it right because now I see that. It makes more sense that he's trying to adopt those speech patterns, I yeah, guess. Yeah, like he, he's trying to take on that cadence of, of speaking. But it's, the more I watched it, the more odd it was <laughs> and the more it stood out. Yeah. So I still like Paul Rudd. <laughs> But it's weird. Yeah. I was like, oh, I don't want to, I, you know, I wish I could unhear that so that I don't think about that now and think he's just weird and quirky. But now every time you see this movie, like you, it's really noticeable. Yeah. So then we cut to a fully stocked bar, the envy of all alcoholics. I need that bar in my life. <laughs> and we hear the same radio program playing. So again, Barry is literally everywhere in Haddonfield. So that's one nice thing you could say about Barry Sims. He's bringing the people of Haddonfield together. <laughs> but we see that this bar is in the house of Dr. Loomis, who is typing away at an old typewriter and listening to, and basically this radio program is talking about all these Michael conspiracy theories, and <laughs> it's it's some pretty weird shit. Well, it's kind of... A bunch of crazies calling in. It, it's like one of those shock jock shows where they have people that call in, and then they make fun of the people that call in, mm -hmm. and then they poke fun at everything else. Yeah. And so one of the callers asks, you know, what happened to that crazy old quack psychiatrist? Is he dead? To which Loomis has a rare chuckle, which I always adore these because he, you know, for him being so serious all the time when he smiles or laughs, it's, you know, for some reason it warms my heart. It's nice to see him get a moment of levity yeah. in these movies. But he says he's not dead, just very much retired. And just then he gets a visit from Terrence Wynn, who we're supposed to know, but, you know, only the eagle-eyed fan would figure out that it's Dr. Wynn that had a very brief scene in the original. It was like a three-second conversation in the first yeah. movie, right? And it was basically that whole thing about how did Michael escape, <laughs> you know? And then we see, and like I said, there's quick cuts all throughout this because then we go right back to Jamie who's arriving at a... At a bus stop and she gets to a payphone to call 911 but because there's been a raging storm this whole time she's unable to get through but she overhears Barry's program over the radio in the bus stop and gives the phone number for the station so she takes that opportunity to call the radio station and basically try to get through 
to Dr. Loomis asking for help that Michael's coming and all this stuff. And then um, as, as this is going on, Loomis and Wynn are having a toast about retirement, but Wynn is also asking him to come back and be his successor at Smith's Grove, which I don't get. <laughs> so if that was just sort of a plot device to get Loomis involved, it was weak at best. Why would he ask someone who's 15 years older than him at least or more yeah. and retired to come back and take charge at Smith Grove because he's retiring? It did just I have a theory about that, but it involves the producer's cut and it's a whole mess, but we'll get into it later. That's just a weak tie-in to me. Yeah. And as this is going on, Tommy is simultaneously hearing this himself. And of course, you know, here's Michael, his ears prick up, you know, but uh, Jamie ends up going to the bathroom and she's trying to comfort her baby, but then Michael shows up and she's hiding in a stall, but by the time Michael gets to said stall, she's already gone out of a window. Okay, I found a gap here. When it shows her in the stall, she's holding her baby. Mm-hmm. Yes? Yes. And then when she leaves, she doesn't have the baby anymore. Mm-hmm. And later you find out that she's hidden the baby. Yeah. And escaped out the window. But in order for that to happen, she would have had to gone out of the stall while Michael was kicking stall doors open looking for her, hidden the baby, gone back in the stall and out the window without him catching her. Yeah, but Michael does all kinds of shit that's out of character because once Jamie has escaped back in this truck driving down the road, he somehow magically teleports into a truck right behind her and he, you know, well, he runs her a, off the road. He is the master carjacker. We know this. He'll steal a car from anybody. Um, So she gets to this farm and she tries to hide in a nearby barn that obviously I love the production value of because there's pumpkins everywhere. It's set in the scene. So it does look really good. And then the storm's going. There's lightning so it's lit very well I I will say that this is a very well lit movie but she is soon found by Michael and he uh, impales her on a I I guess it's a corn thresher I don't I've heard it called yeah I don't know for sure so this this whole sequence was pretty disappointing to me and I know that we've seen Michael kill two people so far and I've been sort of appreciative of how they did it I don't like this one they had the potential to really if they're trying to go back to sort of the the same elements as the first one to build tension in a chase scene you know what I mean the cat and mouse part back and forth him stalking her through the barn and they didn't well okay they they had a great setting and it was one of the ones where I wish they would have spent a little more time and then they didn't I actually felt like this scene was okay because this was the first time that I kind of felt a little bit of tension there mostly just her kind of you know she's going through the hay and you know she's trying to be quiet and all the stuff and and one of my favorite things about Michael particularly in the first one is that with all these shadows he could be anywhere you don't know where he's gonna pop up and I and that's one of the things I love about the shape so much well that's the thing that I feel like is missing in this scene where Michael has the ability to step out of a shadow the the chasey sees him, runs another direction, and he pops out of the darkness in a completely different place. You know, and I don't feel like they did that here. And then he throws her onto the the spikes of this corn thresher. Mm-hmm. Okay, that feels good. He pushes her down on him. I'm still okay. But when he turns the machine on, that feels more like a Jason kill than a Michael Myers kill. Yeah, to me. yeah, it it does feel out of character. But then I thought that the head snapping or neck snapping he did before felt out of character too. So I feel like the neck snapping was okay. I think they went too far with the effects on that one. Yeah, I think if you tone down the gore to a more Halloween level mm-hmm. or what we we think 
think of as a Halloween level, that one was, was okay. Yeah. I just like how he appeared and how he moved and how he just quickly dispatched his target and moved forward. Yeah. But yeah, I can see where that is that with the amount of gore and the spinal column sticking out, that's that's a Friday the thirteenth. Well, I was gonna say there. Michael's kills have always been understated. Delicate in a way in the original, I would say. I always felt like your brutal kills were more reserved for Freddy and Jason. That's a Jason Voorhees So thing. when you get studio interference in Friday the 13th film where they're taking out all the gore, that feels wrong. But I think here we might have benefited for them to tone down the gore some. Less is more in this situation. In in this franchise, yes. Yep. I fully agree. And just before he pushes her further down in the corn thresher, she's reaching for him like she wants to embrace or something. And he kind of, he goes for the big fake out where he acts like he's going to do that too. But then, you know, she tells him he can't have the baby. So he's like, well, fuck you, bitch. <laughs> so, um. But that's the thing. Michael doesn't get angry. He's not supposed to. Not necessarily. Like, okay, there are some some films I feel like it works better, I guess. Like, I would say in this new era we have, this is an angrier Michael. And you you could picture that he's been in Smith's Grove this whole time, getting angrier, getting angrier, angrier. So it makes sense for him to be that way in the, in the newer films, I feel like. I just don't feel like him retaliating to a statement that she makes, to a verbal assault, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't think that fits with what we see of him. But I would say from part four on, we get a lot of shit that's not, you know, it, it's it's uncharacteristic for him. Yeah, for you, sure. Now, I, guys, I've told you a hundred times, I'm not a Michael fangirl, you know, maybe more so than I used to be, but I'm still not. So I'm not trying to be one of those elitists that's like, well, Michael wouldn't do that. When, when, when. I'm really not, guys. I'm just saying, I don't know. It just, this movie just felt off in, in so many ways. That's all. That's all. So don't, don't come at me, okay? <laughs> but we see Michael get to the truck to go get the baby. But when he pulls out the, the blankets, it's, he's got a roll full of brawny. So, <laughs> wah, wah, wah. But the next day, and this is a scene that I hate so much. It pisses me off every time I watch it. We get back to the Strode house and they're sitting down for breakfast. Kara's doing some studying. And this is where we really set John up as just a world-class piece of shit. Well, immediately before that, we get to kind of see a, a, a snippet of his personality because the kids had put a like a Michael Myers sign mm-hmm. in their yard. And he's out there chopping it down with an axe. Yeah. Which makes no sense. Like, these are little kids. Did they cement it into the ground and you need to use an axe? You couldn't just pull it out of the ground? Yeah. I don't know. Like, but characters it, like this just cause me to roll my eyes so hard. I'm like, oh, you're big angry, huh? But, Who hurt you? <laughs> yeah. No, they established really early on that this is not a good guy. Yeah. But, yeah, as you said before, it does set up the really wonderful fall atmosphere here so I, I do love that so much but yeah he's basically sitting there at the table and he's bitching about the kids defacing his property and Deborah Strode who's the mom she's asking Kara you know what are you studying for and and she's explaining it to her but she's like being being in this house is enough to drive anybody crazy which the dad does not take kindly to and he basically starts shaming her for going to school I don't get 
that. Like, if it were me and my child had made some mistakes in the past, but was coming home and was trying to obviously better their life, I would be 100% supportive. Well, doesn't he say something like, being a college girl is not going to cover up your past mistakes? Or yeah. Some, some asshole thing like yeah, that. Yeah, and I would be, yeah, I would be really supportive. I would be trying to encourage it, not... Like, hey, glad you got your shit together, fist bump. Yeah, exactly. Good job, keep going. Like, yeah, I would be trying to encourage that behavior, not shame them for it. So that just didn't make any damn sense at all. And he's talking about how much simpler their life was before she came back with the little bastard of hers, which, like, oh my God. Like, insert twist his dick meme here. <laughs> or and he's vine. standing right in front of the kid, too. I know! Like, Danny's standing right there. Fucking brutal. Oh. Like, that kid's, especially after everything that happens afterward, that kid's gonna be fucked up. Yeah. If he did turn into a killer after that, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but she, Kara then says, I only see one bastard in this house, and he proceeds to slap the shit out of her, which I know in most, it doesn't make it right, but I know in most parenting circles, if you curse at your parent, they're going to smack the shit out of you. That's how it was when I was growing up. I think when you were growing up, we both took some... Oh, you... We both took yeah. some blows to the face you, if you, we you, cursed. You say a cuss word in front of mom, she's going to get some yonder on it. Yeah. Like I said, not, it doesn't mean it's right, but it was it was kind of standard for the time, unfortunately. Well, you, you, res- you respected your elders, but you were never treated the way he's treating her. Yeah. So. But then we see that Danny has pulled a knife on him, like rightfully so. That boy loves his mama. So I was there for it. But, um. And he's a silent little creeper too. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, like, maybe that's why they're trying to recruit like, him. <laughs> he teleported. And I think it's interesting that he chose a kitchen knife. Hmm. Yeah, steak knife. I don't know how much damage he really could have done. Uh, well. <laughs> I mean, unless, I guess you stab somebody and then drag it or something, but, you know, I, I'm not blade in, on a steak I'm, knife is tiny. <laughs> I'm not interested in testing it to find out. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they end up leaving for school. I'm assuming Danny goes and gets on a bus and Kara's trying to, to comfort him. And it's a really sweet scene because this boy is just adorable. He's all kinds of adorable. And I felt so sad for his character having gone through what he just did. He just looks so sad through the whole movie. He really does. And there's a scene later that just gets me in my gut every time. But they all leave for school. Um, The older kids, of course, leaving for college. And then we cut to Wynn and Loomis. They're back at Smith's Grove. And Wynn's basically telling his secretary, like, give Loomis everything he needs on Michael. And then she's like, oh, Michael? Well, they just found Jamie Lloyd's dead body somewhere. And then quickly cut right back to Kara. So I'm like, what the fuck? Like, give us some more time here. And as they're driving by the apartment complex or boarding house, wherever it is that Tommy and apparently Beth live at, which is Tim's girlfriend. Tim is Kara's brother. Sorry, we didn't, you know, introduce this very well, but it's because we don't get any proper introductions to these characters. They're just kind of thrown in at random, right? So Beth is Kara's best friend and Beth is also dating Kara's brother, Tim. Anyway, so they're driving by this boarding house where Tommy and Beth live and we see this old lady outside raking leaves and this is Mrs. Blankenship and I guess she's the super or owns the place or whatever. And Kara's asking Beth about that weird guy that lives upstairs. What's his deal? And Beth says, well, supposedly some weird shit happened to him when he's a kid and he's all kind of fucked up. But she also says the best thing about living there is that Mrs. Blankenship doesn't hear shit. So we go to Tommy in his room because he's, he's while they're driving by and she's asking about him, we see Tommy at his window being a peeping Tommy again. He's creeping. Yeah. <laughs> but we see that he's listening to the playback of Jamie's phone call into the Barry Sims show. And as he's listening and replaying 
and listening and replaying, he turns up, he catches something. And so he turns up the volume and he hears that she's obviously at a bus station. Why would he have that recorded? He's, he's got the giant reel-to-reel recorder in his room, right? You see it. Does he record every Barry Sims show? Does he record it? Did he record it just because he was going to call in and then continued to record after I think, he hung up? I think it was because of the subject matter. Because it's about Michael Myers. So, I don't know. Maybe... <laughs> but with the setup that he has in his room. Yeah. you get it, like, kind of in the, the background, sort of. Yeah. This is not something that's unusual for him. Like, he's got some high-tech shit in his little attic room. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't... I don't know. Why? Why? Did he buy it just so he could record this special episode? <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. Tommy's weird. I don't know why he would have Supposedly some weird shit happened to him when he was a kid. (laughs) Yeah. But he ends up going to the bus stop and I don't know, a lot of shit he does doesn't make any sense because he just kind of goes up to the desk and the guy's like, can I help you? And he's like, can you tell me if there are any rivals from Pontiac last night? (laughs) Like, it's just... I am a robot. (laughs) I am pretending to be Tommy Doyle. (laughs) Um, And the guy's like, yeah, there was. And he's like, can I help you with anything else? And then he just kind of awkwardly walks away. <laughs> and he does that a lot. He has this weird, like, hunched shuffle thing that he does throughout the first half of the movie. But he goes over to the payphone, and this is something else that just, ugh. He sees blood on the floor, you know, from Jamie bleeding from her birth. And I'm like, okay, nobody's noticed this blood. You know, we don't know what time of day he went. For all we know, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> but he didn't notice his blood. So, so <laughs> or I, they didn't notice I, I that I blood. I get nobody seeing it when she came in because nobody was there. Right. But when he goes in, there's a lot of people there. Yeah. It's it's busy and you don't, it doesn't, I guess they're open all night, right? So it's been there all this time. Yeah. I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense, but that's, you know, especially now, you know, the pandemic and shit, you see any body fluids on the floor, you're like, excuse me. It's got COVID. Kill it. Not trying to get all Karen on you, but there's some blood on your floor. Just saying. Might want to clean this shit up. But he follows this trail to the bathroom and then there's blood in the sink in there too. And then he hears a baby cry. This is the best baby ever. (laughs) That baby spent the night in a bathroom cabinet in a bus station and didn't cry until he walked in. Right. Because no one else. No one had to pee. No no other woman (laughs) has come into that bus station and gone to the bathroom since the night before. Yeah. They've been on this bus for, what, 18 hours or so, and, this and is a, nobody had to pee? This baby's, what, two days old? And didn't get a hungry. Day. Didn't get hungry and cry. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. It's just, it's fun. It's it's amusing to me. But he finds the baby, and he takes it, and he leaves. And then we cut back to the barn where Jamie was killed, and we now see that there's a thorn symbol burned perfectly with, like, laser cutting or something. Where did they get the stencil that they used to burn those hay bales with? And I'm like, so Michael took time out of his mission to burn this symbol into that hay. Have you ever seen hay when it's on fire? Man, those guys had skills. Yeah. Maybe it was those pog things from Halloween 3. They just turned them just right. Just those and lasered it? Yeah. Well, they only laser if you're shooting the lady in the face. If you drop them on top of androids, they just sparkle. Oh, that's true. That's true. And then we cut again to the college where the kids are going to school at. And a good song. If you say so. I like that song. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's a 90s just, song. Again, I feel like it dates it. 
It does, but I, I liked that. I remember that song yeah. on the radio. I liked it. And, and guys, which I don't remember that on the radio really? at all. I've only ever heard it in this movie. But, you know, it's... And I do. I'm a fan of Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and all that stuff. But it's very, yeah, of its time where it's like, oh, yeah, we really want you to know that everybody's wearing flannel, okay? <laughs> like, this is how it is. <laughs> I mean, Tim even makes a Beavis and Butthead joke and, you know, I don't even know if our kids know Beavis and Butthead head are but no they don't <laughs> but as the kids are walking Kara drops her her book bag on the ground and everything falls out and Beth comes across one of Danny's drawings which is basically murder and <laughs> she's just like your kids got quite an imagination <laughs> So I know I, I said on the front side that I wasn't going to talk shit about the acting, but her, Beth, hers was tough. Yeah. It was... Some of the line delivery was pretty cringe. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to talk shit. Move on. Maybe it's the script. Maybe it's the script. Because I don't, I don't know who talks like that anyway. So, because she has another line later where I'm just like, who talks like that? Well, yeah. <laughs> but I think for a lot of these, this was a first movie, not just for Paul Rudd. Right. I think some of these other, other actors and actresses in here, this was their first film. Yeah. And in some cases, their only film. Yeah. So. But that being said, I really thought Marianne Hagen's performance was actually pretty good. I felt like she was believable enough of, you know. She, um, she did a good job at this. Yeah, she did and well. I got the feeling they were trying to cast somebody who would be more of a Laurie Strode yeah. type. But she also has, you know, kind of a, I, I mean, I don't want to go as far as to say a tragic backstory, but, you know, she does come across as she's been through some shit and she's struggling and she's trying to make the best of a bad situation. She has. And she almost didn't get this role. Yeah. Because they Weinstein they her, bullshit. Her chin was too pointy and she was too thin one of the weinstein brothers thought she was too thin i'm not going to say that dickhead's name <laughs> so okay going forward in this because i think they do more that they're the studio or the production company or whatever more than one we're just gonna refer to them as miramax yeah okay so miramax <laughs> thought she was too thin and her chin was too pointy yeah that's ridiculous utterly ridiculous uh, yeah but she uh, did a good job. I Yeah, I thought she did great. And the little boy that plays Danny, I thought he did really good too for a child actor because not all of them are good. But he, he did a really good job. And like I said, I'll get to a scene later that really upsets me. He but... was channeling Daniel Harris from part five. What? Look, look sad and don't say anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we see Tommy uh, take the baby to the hospital and he asks for help, but the nurse is basically blowing him off. And when he tries to, tries to give some urgency, she calls security. Well, he just sort of screams at her. But he's holding a baby and he's upset. You would think, I mean, I don't know. It was just like, I if, if, I saw some, if I saw somebody with a baby and they're clearly upset, I'd be like, oh my God, what's wrong? You know, it's a baby. There's a baby in trouble. What's wrong with the baby? Not this nurse. <laughs> no. She doesn't care about your problems. She did not want to be bothered. <laughs> nurse Helga does not have time for you. <laughs> but Tommy ends up running into Loomis. And of course, Loomis doesn't know who he is because it's been however many years, you know, since 1978. And he tells him, you know, I'm I'm Tommy Doyle. I'm the little boy that uh, Laurie Strode was babysitting. And he's like, oh, right, 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 right. And like, what are you doing here? And he's, they're basically, he's like, I mean, Jamie's Jamie's dead, you know, that's the last of the bloodline. And Tommy's like, no, she's not the last. And it's kind of indicated that, you know, the baby is part of that bloodline now. And he warns Loomis that there's a family living in the Myers house and that they have to be warned. Well, just then, you know, he's, he's starting to try to go off about a theory he has, which we'll get into later. But as he's trying to go into this, then security shows up and he tells Loomis to meet him at the campus rally later at night. And they brought it up briefly in the beginning during the radio show that they're 
were having this big uh, college campus rally basically about lifting the ban on Halloween that has for some reason been enforced. Well, allegedly, and it pops up at some point here, and I don't remember if I heard him talking about it on the radio while we were watching it, but Halloween was banned in Haddonfield in 1989. Yeah, and then security shows up, then he does that awkward, eh. Eh, eh, walk away again. So we go back to the Myers house and Deborah's, you know, it looks like they haven't been living here long. Like they're probably still moving in. And so Deborah's cleaning up the front porch. And by the way, I'm sure everybody knows this by now, but I'm gonna say it anyway. The characters of Kara's parents were named John and Deborah after John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, respectively. It makes you wonder how they feel about that, right? Like you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna shit on the characters we created, but you're gonna give us this name in characters in your shitty movie of bi- for, Yeah, for because us? you got the guy, John Carpenter, who's an asshole, you know? It's like, that would be insulting enough. And then you have the mom who's just kind of meek and frail, you know, looks like she gets smacked around and give her the name of somebody who's known as being this powerful woman in horror. Like, it's, it's it almost, doesn't fit. doesn't compute. It's almost more like they did it as a slap in the face as opposed to a, an homage or a credit. I think it was an homage. I just think it was a bad homage. They should have, they needed more powerful characters to carry those names. Yes, exactly. Give John Carpenter's name to a badass, not some dickhead. But we see uh, Deborah pick up an axe and she puts it in this plastic bin and Michael's watching her, you know, in the shadows or whatever. And she goes down to her basement. She sets down the bin and they're obviously having a problem with their washing machine. It's like, I don't know, our washing machine does a similar thing where it kind of, it starts in one place, but when you go in to check the load, it's bounced a halfway across the room. It's because your load's unbalanced. <laughs> but she goes to look in the washer and it, I guess the spin cycle or whatever hasn't worked. So there's all this water and then it floods out the floor. Why was that washer still running? <laughs> the like, power, yeah. She goes, the power's out all yeah. in the rest of the house. And she, so it's a fuse box that she's flipping the switch on. Because you yeah. see those like old school fuses in there. Yeah. So she flips it a few times. Clearly the power's off. The Damn, washer is still running. <laughs> yeah didn't make sense to it's me so either. Dumb. And it comes and that comes back to us again later, guys. But um she she gets the sheets out. She's clearly going to go put them out in the line cuz this sets up her her kill spoilers here in a few minutes. But as she's kind of going through her house suspiciously and scared and stuff, um, we see that Loomis is in there. And he says that he's there to help her family. And we cut to Tommy back in his apartment and he's cleaning the baby and he names him Steven. And he says that he's not going to let anything happen to him. It's a very, it's a very sweet scene, but it is very brief again, because <laughs> we cut back to the Myers house where Dr. Loomis is telling Deborah the story of Michael basically, you know, he's fucked up, yo. So he begs her basically to get your family out of the house unless you want to suffer the same fate that Lori and her daughter suffered. And then we cut to Danny. He's walking home from school with a pumpkin and he sees the man in black in front of him. We see the man in black kind of off in the distance and that causes him to randomly bump into Tommy and drops his pumpkin, which was a nice callback to the first film where uh, Tommy was bullied and drops his pumpkin. So I did appreciate that little bit, especially because Tommy gives him a look like, I know how you feel. <laughs> so he looks very apologetic. Then we cut to Strode Realty where Deborah then calls John and she's telling him that Jamie's dead and Loomis is, is Loomis was has been there and he's warned her about what's going on. And of course he's being a dick and he's rebuffing everything she's saying and telling her she's going crazy. Well, um, he says, you let some weirdo in the house? Yeah, which to be fair, you probably would too. <laughs> You'd be like, why are you just letting random men into our house, Ashley? What are you doing? What are you up to? That's true. <laughs> 
but she basically begs him, like, I'm gonna go. I want you to go with us. Why is beyond me, but she wants him to go, and he's telling her, well, you've just lost it. You've just lost it, um, and is laughing at her. Just, yeah, very mean, and we see that he's drinking on the job, too, and then she kind of puts, puts two and two together. She's like, you knew what happened in this house, didn't you? You knew, and you didn't tell us. Like, you knew your brother couldn't sell this house, so you took it, and, you know, at this point, she kind of looks cracked. You know, she's got these very crazy eyes and like, ah, you knew. Ah. <laughs> Steampy, you idiot. <laughs> you know, she's just very crazy. But uh, um, as Deborah's packing up after this phone call, she goes back to the basement and we see in the plastic bin before that she picked up from the porch that the axe is no longer in it. And the phone rings and she runs up to answer it because she's obviously freaked and she answers the phone to hear somebody say, we want the child. Sorry, it's probably a bad impression. But uh, then we see that Michael is right behind her. And of course, you know, he's there. To, to kill her. He means business. And she runs outside and kind of reminiscent of the sheet scene in the original. She's going through these sheets, trying to get away, drops her glasses all Velma style, picks them back up right in time for him to take the axe and butcher her with it. Now, a few minutes after that, uh, Kara comes home from school and door's locked. She can't get in. And she goes around back to where the clotheslines were, but we don't see any evidence anymore that her mother's been killed. So she gets in through the back door, which was left unlocked. And in my opinion, we get an excruciating long time of her going through the house saying, mom, 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 where are you, mom? Forever, it felt like. And she finally goes to Danny's room because she's called for him too and he won't answer. And she sees Tommy in his room, which, you know, if I'm her, that's pretty fucking weird. Why is this random guy sitting with my kid? I would not react well to that. <laughs> yeah. And Danny's even like, but he's my new friend and he knows all about dinosaurs. And Somebody's I'm like, gonna have a bad day. Yeah, I'm like, okay, dinosaurs are cool, but there's still a weird dude in our house. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but Tommy asks her if she knows whose room this be- used to belong to. And then we just cut to her going to his apartment. So that would be a lot lengthier for me. You know, same thing. I'd be like, who the fuck are you? What do you do in my house? Like, But she recognizes him. She knows he's the dude that's been watching her undress. I'd be full on, I'd be full on like that old brash lady out of Friday the 13th part five. Who the fuck are you? What the fuck do you want? (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I don't think she would have just followed him that quickly. Yeah. Like, I don't know you. (laughs) I mean, I get it. They needed a reason for her to end up in his room, but this is not probably the best way to do it. But she does. She, she follows him and he tells her basically, you need to stay here and you need to keep an eye on your house. And Danny, meanwhile, he's staying from a window and he sees Michael outside and he tries to, you know, like mom. And she's like, whatever, I'm busy. Like, well, this is where Tommy is like, got his computer fired up, right? Yeah. And he's explaining the runes to her that he's figured it all out. Uh, no, not, not at this point. Basically, um, she's, she's asking, she's telling him he's crazy and you know, what am I supposed to be looking for? And he says, him. And so at that point, she's just staring at all these old clippings on his wall. But yeah. he's, yeah, we're not to runes yet still. But, and and she is, I will say that she is obviously set up as a great mom, but this is the first in a lot of bad parenting <laughs> decisions from this point. You know, kids like obviously trying to get her attention and she's like, not right now, I'm busy. And Tommy is having a time with this baby. You know, he he's not a dad. He, he don't get it. But uh, Kara's trying to help him calm the baby down. And after that. I mean, I feel like we cut to something after that, but I I don't remember what it is. Maybe it's one of those quick music video shot things that they do, because that they do so much. I hate them. But then we do go to Tommy, basically ex- explaining his theory on how Michael operates and why he does what it 
does. This he does was, what he does, sorry. This was a poor choice in this movie, I, I believe. I feel it was a poor choice. Number one, why would Tommy know about the runes at all? Because the last time he saw Michael was in 1978. Mm-hmm. Yes. If we assume that he had the tattoo on his wrist back in 1978, would Tommy have ever been in a place to see it? No. So how did he come up with runes? And then they use this to explain basically why Michael killed people in every movie up to this point. Well... You got to feel for these writers, right? Because again, back in part five, we had that goofy Swiss guy set up this bullshit and he was like, well, it's the next guy's problem. So they're busy, busy trying to scramble, trying to figure out, okay, how do we explain this? So but I feel it, like it sucks, unfortunately. In some places like this, they created more questions than, it, yeah, than yeah. answers mm-hmm. because Tommy wouldn't know, should not know about the runes at all. And the fact that they try to use his, this to explain why he killed in the first... First yeah. four movies. Yeah. It's four, right? He's one, going two, on four and five. And then this one. Yeah, he's of going some on kind about of planetary alignment. Yeah, and all constellations and math and it's it but he comes to the conclusion at any rate that the baby Steven is meant to be Michael's final sacrifice. Right. Because they're gonna transfer it or something. Yeah. I guess it's not very clear. Even in the producer's cut, it's not terribly clear what they're doing. So they're, yeah, it's just bad writing. But they look and they can't find Danny all of a sudden. And they go downstairs and he's sitting with Mrs. Blankenship. And Tommy's going to leave and he tells her to stay put. That he's going to go look for the only man who knows how to stop this. And back at the hospital, we see Loomis and Wynn getting told that Jamie had just given birth. But they're like, well, where's the baby? And then, of course, Loomis puts two and two together because he saw Tommy with the baby. And then we see Tommy, and I actually really, really like this shot. It's one of my favorite shots in the movie. It's Tommy walking through this campus rally and it's in slow-mo and he's going through and there's people with with picket signs behind him. And it's a very cool shot. It's a pretty shot. Yeah. As in the background, Mrs. Blankenship is explaining to Danny the, the story of Halloween, the traditions and why things are the way they are, why, how they used to be. And then also tells him about the boogeyman. So it was funny. In uh, 25 Years of Horror, they did a panel interview and the actress that played Miss Blankenship mm-hmm. can still remember that. Yeah. She yeah. recited the whole thing for the I audience. I saw that it clip. It was pretty cool. Yeah. It wasn't verbatim, I, but it was still, it was it pretty was cool. Close. close enough. Yeah. <laughs> she remembered it better than I did. Yeah, but it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty cute. And once she brings up the boogeyman, Kara's like, all right, that's enough. Like, cut it out. But then Mrs. Blankenship tells her, he hears the voices too, you know, the same voices that she calls him Mikey Myers, <laughs> which I always think is funny. Little, little Mikey Myers. Little Mikey Myers. <laughs> like, don't try to humanize him, okay? Like, <laughs> he's got the devil's eyes, okay? <laughs> So, and that these voices were this the same ones that told Michael to kill his family. Well, she said she was babysitting yes. somebody. Yes. Guys, we've seen the movie, okay? We know that it was just Michael and Judith there. There was no babysitter. Well, and there's another thing here in a minute, but... <laughs> but anyway, we cut back to the rally and Barry shows up. Nothing's, there's nothing really special about that scene. It's a quick scene of just Barry showing up in his trench coat and hat. So I think we as an audience are supposed to be like, oh, it's the man in black. But clearly it's not because he's, hello, Haddonfield. And he opens his trench coat. He's only wearing boxer shorts. And it's just sent, it's to set him up as, whoo, 
ooh, he's crazy, you know? But again, it's very quick. And we go right back to the Myers house where John is showing up after work. Nobody's there. And, you know, he goes, thanks for the dinner. Like, you're lucky I don't give you cat food in a sandwich. Yeah, well, fuck. It, it, this, this is where he realizes that she actually left. Yeah. Yeah, it's what he says. Oh, damn it. She actually left. Like, yeah. She should have left years ago. <laughs> right. And just then the power goes out and he's he's mocking it. He's like, oh, it must be the boogeyman. Like, come here, boogeyman. Um, I hated this scene. I, I did too. Whole, does that qualify as like a fourth wall break? Sort of. Because, I mean, when he starts talking you mean shit like about the boogeyman, meta? you know what's coming next. Yeah. And that just felt really out of character, even for him. Yeah. Like, if they just had him bitching about the power and everything else under the sun, if he if he immediately launched into, you know what really grinds my gears? I could have <laughs> bought that. Yeah. But when he starts mocking the boogeyman, I don't know, that just kind of gives away everything. So he hears, uh, he hears that broken washing machine going off again. How is that fucker still running? <laughs> That doesn't... Well, Michael was clearly trying to set the mood, okay? I guess. <laughs> so John goes to the basement and... Um, at this point, the floor is completely flooded and he goes and he opens up the washer and there's the sheets from Deborah's murder all bloody and stuff. And for the first time in the movie, he looks afraid. At least Michael was courteous enough to put him in the washer. This, that's true. I mean, he didn't use a stain stick, so he, <laughs> it's going to be, they're all going to be red, but he tried. But Michael comes from behind. He gives John a stab and then, you know, in typical Michael fashion, lifts him up off his feet and then he throws him against the breaker box, fuse I guess, box. fuse box and starts starts electrocuting him and he starts foaming at the mouth until his head explodes. I mean, there's a cool shot where you see the house from outside and it's all lit up and stuff. So that's kind of cool to look at, but... uh, There's so much about this scene (laughs) that's there to not like much. Okay, I like how Michael just appears behind him. Yeah. That's... We're in character. We're Mm -hmm. doing good Michael Myers stuff. He's just there. No noise, no nothing. The silent predator. But then he throws him on the fuse box, (laughs) which, okay, that's that's fine. Michael could do that, but I don't buy the head exploding. It shouldn't still have power to it at all, right? Because the rest of the house, the power was out. So why was that still electrified? And again, why was the washer running when the power's out? And Michael's standing in like four inches of water. How did it not fry his ass too? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. And again, the head exploding thing, that's a Friday the 13th kill. I thought you said you liked that kill. I like it right up until the head exploding thing. I do. At that point where they have to take it, like, we just got to give it a little more. You know, we got to take it just a little bit over the limit to make it more appealing to 14-year-old boys or whatever. That's too much. Which was our test audience for this. Now we are no longer in Halloween territory. Now we're in Friday the 13th territory. Or or even Nightmare on Elm Street. That could be a Nightmare on Elm Street kill. That's not a Michael kill. So back at the rally, we see Beth and Tim and Barry sitting on on a stage. And she's basically going into a rant about how they need to lift the ban of Halloween. And Barry, being a, such a dick, he makes a, a sexual advance toward her. And, of course, Tim doesn't do or say anything. He's just kind of sitting there letting it happen. And, te- I, not Tina, where the fuck did I get Tina from? You still got Tina in your head from <laughs> part five. Ugh! <laughs> not if I can help it. Yeah. Th- but, this uh, whole scene felt forced to me. Yeah. This was a really awkward interaction. I feel like a real radio host yeah. would have done a better job. I, I, Howard Stern could have pulled this off a lot better. Although he definitely would not have got along with anybody else that was making this movie. So I'm going to quote Beth's character here. As I was saying... I bet she wears crotchless panties and barks like a dog. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh... No, because you said it with inflection. She doesn't say anything with inflection. <laughs> 
But she then tells the audience and Barry that Tim lives in the Myers house. And apparently Tim did not know this. And so Barry's ears prick up and he's like, well, hey, why don't we relocate there? And he says, you know, they're going to meet there in five minutes or whatever. And then they're going to come back because apparently they were supposed to toss out candy and all this stuff. And Barry could not give a shit less. But he tells them he's going to meet them at the Myers house nonetheless. And then we see him trying to get to his van. He can't find the van. And meanwhile, he's bitching on the phone and making threats to people and bitching about Haddonfield. And he gets to the van and then we see him get stabbed from behind. Then we cut back to uh, the Myers house where Tim and Beth are walking in and no one's there. And Tim asks Beth, is this shit true? And so she uses this opportunity to be a dick. And basically in this, this is always a bitch of mine in this movie or in these films is she recounts Judith's murder. And they always tell it with such detail, like, okay, we know you've seen the movie, but how the fuck do you know that this happened this way? There are two people that know exactly what happened in that house that night. One of them's dead and the other one's Michael Myers and he doesn't tell you. Yes. No one other than those two people should know what happened in that house that night. Yeah. Did they write the police report and be like, she was sitting there brushing her hair. Like, like there was no CSI <laughs> to, to run this shit down back then. She should not have all those details. She should only know Michael killed his they sister. They wouldn't give all those details. Even if for some reason they did know that she was sitting down brushing her hair, fell out of the chair, whatever. Yeah, they could possibly know that, but I don't feel like that's something right. they would divulge to the public. We should know as the audience. Yes. No one else in these movies should know that. Yeah. And then it gets on my nerves how many times it's like going and giving Peter Parker's backstory over and over and over again. It's like, we know what happened. You don't have to tell us. If this is the first movie you're watching, okay, sure, I buy that. But why is this the first movie you're watching? (laughs) For starters, but... Well, if this is the first one you're watching, it almost guarantees you're not going to watch any of the rest of them. But um, Tim tells her to lay off. You know, he didn't know this. He's really freaked out. And it, it's, you know, it's it's obviously upsetting to him. And for some reason, after that, their mind goes automatically to, is my favorite quote, getting down with the get down. <laughs> I know Travis looks at me every time I say that. Okay, they were going, fuck, yo. Is that what you want me to say? <laughs> no, I just... <laughs> They were going to have the sex. It's just an odd way to put it. (laughs) Anyway, then we're back at the rally and Tommy's, you know, just kind of standing there lurking as he does when he sees this little girl and she's spinning around and she's saying, mommy, it's raining red. It's raining red. Mommy, it's raining red. And so he goes over to see what's going on and she tells him it's warm and they look up while Tommy gets some blood on his hand. And so that causes him to look up and then we see Barry's body in the tree. So I like this scene. (laughs) Okay, I think that the visual of having the little girl in the princess outfit and she's like covered in blood is an interesting shot. Mm-hmm. But and that that part alone is kind of creepy. It is, and I feel like that's a I don't know, I don't want to say it's a powerful image, but it's good. You're not seeing my look here, guys, but I'm giving him a look. <laughs> Okay, I feel like that was a good choice. Uh-huh. Here's what I don't buy. When Tommy's headed that direction, you see all these people behind him. Uh-huh. Like, this is a crowded event. How is it that none of them saw Michael hanging the berry pinata up in that tree? <laughs> he was decorating for Christmas early. He hung berry <laughs> ornament. Yeah. <laughs> in this tree with all these people around and nobody saw it. I mean, to be fair, that dummy did look like a dummy. So maybe that's what people thought it was. Maybe it really was a pinata. <laughs> like he's decorating for Halloween. <laughs> but the body ends up falling on the ground. And yeah, yeah, Loomis ends up showing up. And at this point, it's basically about where's the baby? Where's the baby? And we go back to um, Tim and Beth post-coital. <laughs> and then... 
this is where the dialogue for me is completely cringe, you know, kind of like me, but <laughs> he tells her, she has this line, I'm sorry, where they're talking, he's making a jab about Barry's stupid uh, crotchless panties joke, and she goes, I am bad, aren't I? <laughs> I don't know why. Clearly you are. <laughs> Bad. That's right. I said, who the fuck talks like that? <laughs> I don't know. It's we just... we said we weren't going to bash on the acting too much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, but I, I I agree that the I line... cannot abide that line or its delivery. The line delivery is is <laughs> it's an odd choice. But the director and the editor are just as much to blame for that as the actress because at no point did they make any effort to correct it and go, okay, listen, do it like this instead. Yeah. So it's kind of on them too. Yeah. I, th- I will give you that, okay? But I still don't have to like the fucking scene. Uh, I agree. <laughs> Anyways, Tim goes off to take a shower. And then we cut back to Kara at Tommy's. And then we cut back <laughs> to Tim. Like I said, very quick cuts here. And he's in the shower. And... I don't like this scene at all. Okay, the, the power being out in that house is just bothering the shit out of me. I was like, did I step on your line or something? Why no. are you looking at me like this? <laughs> no, I just... It's just so ridiculous the power's been out for a long time yeah except for the washer washer works like a champ yeah <laughs> but there's steam all in this room so yeah. there's no power but they still have hot water right oh maybe it's a gas water heater maybe but, but... stupid choices <laughs> but tim asks asks beth to get him a towel and then we see michael hand him a towel which i guess his eyes were closed because i'm like he didn't notice this big fucking man hand handing him a towel or or this tattoo on on the wrist like i don't know like i said maybe his eyes were closed we didn't notice the tattoo on the wrist of the first two movies so (laughs) it's it's possible well didn't the weirdo give it to the non-existent weirdo give it to him in part four the non-existent dr death (laughs) yeah so tim gets out of the shower and he's he's doing the common horror movie trope where he's wiping the mirror off, wiping the steam off, and then we see Michael behind him and he grabs a hold of Tim and cuts his throat. Um, Another good kill. Okay. (laughs) And then we go back to Kara, who's then calling Beth to warn her. Basically, like, you guys need to get out of there. And They're replaying the scene from the first movie. Isn't that it? Where she's on the phone and she's like, he's in the room, he's in, you know, behind you, and then they don't see him and he kills him anyway. No. Which, what movie am I thinking of where that happened? I don't have any clue. seen that somewhere before that's all i'm saying yeah no i think if you're referring to the original whenever uh linda's on the phone and gets strangled with the phone cord i don't think she was warning her i think Uh, she was just calling to check in anyway but anyway that scene felt very familiar to me yeah but she's calling her you know what are you guys doing there where's my brother what's going on and then we see michael enter the room behind beth and she tries to warn her he's right behind you and um then michael stabs her several times in slow-mo so (laughs) i don't know that was an angry stabbing too yeah he he didn't like her either And then we notice that Danny is now gone again. And this time he's headed to the Myers house. And this always cracks me up because she sees him walking to the house, but turns and looks at the bed anyway. Like, am I seeing things? Is it really him? (laughs) Yeah. She has to do a double take to verify that that's her child. (laughs) Yeah. So she runs to the house after him. And then this is where I got really mad because if it's my kid, I'm running after them. But she stops. She gets in and she stops and slowly taking her time goes to grab a fire poker. Yeah, I don't And then that. very slowly ascends the stairs. So it's like... I don't feel like that's how either of us would react in that situation. No, like, 
not at all. I might try to grab a weapon, but I'd be fucking quicker about if it. If it was just me, then I would probably be cautious. But I think if you think that one of the... When you have kids, when you think that one of your children's in danger, all your non-primal thinking goes kind of out the window. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're just trying to get to your kid. Yeah. And this was a poorly written scene, I think. I just... Yeah. And I... And I, I don't could, know that I would have even stopped. This is maybe... Because this is... I think this is the shortest movie in the franchise to this point. And I think it's the same thing. It was to pad out the runtime. They would probably tell you it's to build suspense, but I just don't fire it find it realistic. No, there there are times when you need to build suspense. This is not one of them. Yeah. It like did. if you'd had a frantic mom running in the house, running through the rooms trying to find her child, I think that would have been more suspenseful for me yes. as a parent. Yes. To, to kind of pull that frantic feeling that she has and put it on the viewer yeah. would have been better. Yeah. But she, yeah, she very slowly goes up these stairs to try to find him and <laughs> she goes to her bedroom and sees oh, God damn it, I almost said teen Tina, again, why is my mind with Tina? Maybe it's because this movie is not good either. <laughs> I don't know, but of all the things you could remember from that movie, I don't know why it's her. But she sees Beth laying in the bed and for some reason does the thing where, you guys okay? <laughs> she just watched her get stabbed like five times with a giant ass butcher knife. But we better pull the sheet back to be sure. We have to make sure. She might not be dead. Like, they are so not my concern at this point. I'm sorry. I love my siblings, but my kids are first. Always. Yeah. But alas, she does pull back the sheet and finds Beth and Tim dead. And she just stands there. I mean, I think she does scream, but then she just stands there lingering on it. And this was a this was a thing that I wanted to bring up, okay? Because I'm a pretty big fan of director Steve McQueen. Um, he did movies like Shame and 12 Years a Slave. And he does these shots where he will linger on a character's face or on a shot to further drive home the reality of what you're seeing. And in that case, it works. There's some up close and personal shit that it makes you really uncomfortable like to stay on a shot for so long it makes you uncomfortable inside but in this instance she's just standing there like it's like dude they're dead <laughs> like move on the problem with shots like that is that it hinges a hundred percent on the actor or actress that's doing that you know mm -hmm. like i agree that those shots can be very very good but you gotta be really careful with that because in this one it's like did she take a valium <laughs> at some point i don't like, yeah she's just the, are you this, okay i don't feel like the sense of urgency is there yeah i mean i've seen those like you're talking about where they freeze on a character's face and and they're they're, they're terrified and so you get that feeling from it yeah. as a viewer this is not one of those yeah at all and the thing is like you you could say that there's a lot of long shots with laurie strode in the original of her just walking down the street or wandering through a house but she doesn't know what's going on at that point she doesn't know that michael's there she's just having a regular typical day or night she doesn't have to have that sense of urgency yet and when michael does show up she is quick to act but the fact that she, that you as the audience know and she doesn't is part of what makes it scary exactly because you fear for her yes and they just don't capture that no. in any of these other movies I, I don't feel like they do no i just you want to go grab her by the shoulders and go wake up wake up 
<laughs> so then she she does finally look over into Danny's room and she sees him sitting there and he's he's almost in a trance himself at this point. And then Michael shows up and again, she doesn't run. Like she's slowly backing away from him down the hall. And then her mother's body just materializes out of the ceiling. I mean, I don't know if there was like an attic thing there, attic access or something, but her mother's body just kind of comes from the ceiling. So Michael is stalking her down the hall and again it goes on very slowly very tediously i just i have a hard time with this shot and this is i have a hard time separating the parent me from just movie watching me and i feel like this scene is is not good (laughs) (laughs) because you think about it like if it's like okay run and i am going to take on this thing to make sure that my child has time to escape yeah and it just and maybe that's what they were going for here i mean to be fair dandy does run away as she's in he, front of he him. He does, but I just don't buy it. Or at it. least he runs to the front of the house. I don't buy it from her. Yeah. I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah. She doesn't, she kind of readies up, but then she doesn't. Yeah. And I don't feel like Michael's pursuit is Michael enough. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> but she does eventually hit him with the fire poker and he falls down the stairs and Danny's waiting at the door at the bottom of the stairs. So, so she does do all of that, but at, there's one point where she's running away from him, right? Or backing away from him. She closed the door. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And he just patiently waits there for her to get further away. And then he opens the door and comes after her. Like he gave her a head start. <laughs> it's it's like she closed the door and he got confused and didn't know what to do. Like, <laughs> shit, nobody's ever closed the door on me before. <laughs> and that's just not a Michael Myers thing to do. Like, if she closed the door, that he should have popped out from around a corner somewhere else. Like, done his Michael Myers sneaky teleport business. Yeah. You know, we underestimate the sneakiness. And he should have come at her from a different angle. And I feel like that would have been... I feel like in Halloween 1, he did that with Lori. Yeah. She thinks she escaped and he pops out from somewhere else and you don't really know how he got there. Mm-hmm. But then she does this. She does to him what he is supposed to do to everyone else. She's backing around, and then all of a sudden she disappears and pops up behind him and pushes him down the stairs. So it's like they reversed him or something. So I just don't. I don't like this sequence. I've I've always made the argument that okay, I, I've defended these movies to Travis before, where I'm like, well, you don't know what you would do in that situation if you were put in it. Like, give them some credit. And I guess now I'm leaning more to your side because I'm going, okay, he's falling down the stairs. He looks like he might be knocked out or something. My ass is flying down those stairs, snatching that boy up and running out the door. But she takes all the time in the world to go down these stairs and then we see Danny on the other side of Michael's body and she very slowly walks over like, bitch, give him more time. That That's what he needs. He needs time to wake up. He shouldn't have been, he should not have been uh, asleep or well, he, whatever. Well, he wasn't. It's, it's, it's obviously the fake out. It's a trick. Get an axe, you but know? he was after the boy. <laughs> yeah. The boy was right there. Yeah. In the first one, they shot him six times <laughs> and he falls off a balcony and then gets up and walks it off. But in this one... If you, you get know, killed, walk it off. <laughs> he, he he falls down half a flight of stairs and that stuns him for a minute. Yeah, I don't, I don't it's know. It's not consistent. But, but... I agree. There'd be some... We'd be moving fast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I couldn't get out of that house fast enough. But she very slowly steps over Michael's body to grab Danny, which then he grabs her by the... Uh, Michael grabs her by the ankle. She falls back bust her head but she takes the poker and she starts beating him on the arm over and over until he finally lets go and then and I do actually appreciate this scene because she takes Danny and she's running over 
to Tommy's apartment and it's very reminiscent of Jamie being chased by Michael and going and beating on the door uh, trying to wake Tommy up. So I thought it was cool that it's another girl who's running to Tommy beating on the door and Tommy is slow to answer. So I thought that was really cool. I I liked that callback. And once she gets in and once Tommy lets her in and we discover the baby's missing then or or, I mean think we already know the baby's missing at this point but Tommy's asking who else knew I had the baby and Loomis is like nobody knew me except for me and then he stops because then we as the audience go when knew about the baby and then we hear a voice call to Danny again and I actually really like this shot too is of Danny just kind of slowly turning his head like I don't know can't explain it I do like this shot though and then we cut to Danny sitting in the man in black's lap and then it's revealed dun 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 that Wynn has been the man in black this whole time. Why did he have to change into his man in black clothes for this? Like, is it for the audience? It's so for the audience. He was the man in black? Yeah. Because if he's fixing to tell him everything, there's no point in him wearing the clothes. I mean, you assume that the whole man in black thing was supposed to be some kind of disguise, right? To help maintain some form of anonymity as he goes and does this. Yeah. As he uses a machine gun to hose down an entire police department because a psychiatrist could totally do that. But I, I don't get it. And then there's another wardrobe change later in the movie that makes no sense either. Yeah. But we see that Mrs. Blankenship is holding the baby and that she is also in on this, quote, cult. So as she she holds up a knife to go after Kara, she fucking Sally Hardesty's out that window, <laughs> but does not do as good a job because Sally brushed that shit off and ran away. But Kara gets knocked out and then we fade to black and then pick up of uh, Tommy and Loomis just kind of randomly standing there going, what happened? What's going on? And so we as an audience are going, yeah, what the fuck? What happened? <laughs> so this whole last sequence, I just can't stand it. I mean, there's a couple of moments in there that I do like, but when they're having that whole living room scene and Michael's standing right behind him mm-hmm. in the house, I mean, have they taught him how to heal, sit, roll over, shake hands? He's an unstoppable killing machine. Why is he just standing there listening to the man in black or when tell him what he's doing? It makes no sense. I don't, why would he, it's stupid. Anyway, but Tommy and Loomis realize that they've been drugged and <laughs> with what? <laughs> It lasted three minutes. Yeah, three, three seconds is more like it. But uh, Loomis says that he knows where Wynn is wanting to play this game. And then Kara wakes up. We cut to her waking up and we're in Smith's Grove and her clothes have been changed. She's wearing this white gown. And then we cut to Tommy and Loomis arriving at Smith's Grove. And from the outside, it looks very dilapidated. Everything's all rusted and beat up. But we go inside and it's very polished and pristine. It's like spotless in there. Yeah, like the way you assume a hospital would be that's been kept up all this time. This this hospital has the most diverse layout and environments that you will ever see in a hospital. Mm-hmm. We got ultra clean hallways. We got a busted ass exterior. We got hallways full of pipes. We got a ritual Satanist cult cave. We got everything. They get everything. <laughs> it's a world unto itself. But Loomis pulls out a gun and Tommy's like, you know, that's not going to stop him. And he's like, it's not for Michael. But when? <laughs> I'm like, you do it. You go get him. I don't know, really know what he's going to do at this point but I believe he can do it. <laughs> and he tells Tommy to stay put and he goes into Wynn's office. And as Tommy's standing there, and this was uh, this was some edi- editing choices that really annoyed me, is that we see Tommy standing in the hall and he hears a scream and we see that he's holding a bag. <laughs> yeah, this was just a bad edit. Now, if you that... know the producer's cut, you know what's in that bag. Right, but his magic obvious... acorns are in that bag. 
his magic runes are in the, his magic rocks. His runes are in that bag. And in, in the producer's cut, we know he's going to use those to stop Michael, but they did not go that route in this one. And they could have cut that scene two seconds earlier and it would have nipped that yeah, out. Yeah, or anyway. at least raised the, cropped, well, cropped the, the scene so you couldn't see the bag in the shot. Yeah. But yeah, so he goes, you know... He doesn't listen to Loomis and he got, sets out to go find Kara. And in Wynn's office, Loomis is asking him, you know, why are you doing this? Why now? And Wynn is telling him, now you can join us. Like, don't you want to be part of this? And Loomis why is like... Why did he change clothes again? I don't know. He, now he's got on his college professor outfit. Yeah. And Loomis is like, you're fucking crazy, dude. He, he wants no part of it and gets knocked out for his troubles by some of the cult member dudes and then we see tommy go into enter the maximum security uh, portion of the... which is unlocked <laughs> yeah i know i thought that was funny and we're gonna too. find out that there's still inmates <laughs> and, in there and tommy even but goes all the doors are unlocked and tommy even opens the door and then goes maximum security <laughs> so i did find that funny too and he immediately runs into a crazy person and i put her down in my notes as crazy meth lady <laughs> She's got a grill on her for sure, but she's been stabbed. And then Tommy begins his full descent into crazy because he falls down. He goes, oh, shit. It cracks me up every time. But we've discussed this because people have picked on his performance and in, in these the scenes coming up. I actually find them more realistic because what are you going to do? You're going to be like, oh my God, fuck, I'm so, I'm so fucked, you know? If there was anything that would crack you, this would be it. Exactly. And he's already been traumatized as a child. Like he's, you, you know, from the, from the onset that he's terrified of Michael Myers. Yeah. And so I personally feel like his reactions in the back end of this movie, pretty good. Yeah. I, I like it. But no, a lot of people did not. <laughs> he, f- he ends up finding Kara or the room that Kara's in, but the door's locked. So he grabs a nearby fire extinguisher and starts beating the doorknob with it. And then <laughs> we see Michael show up. <laughs> This is what I'm talking about is that Tommy looks at him. He gives this weird expression. And guys, if you've seen it, you know what we mean. But he just kind of gives this. Like half grin face twitch. Oh shit. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's what it is. It's oh shit. Like I'm going to die. But he does end up breaking Kara out and gets her, I don't know, these different hallways are broken up by these sliding doors with bars. And Tommy gets her on the other side of one and Michael reaches a hand through, grabs Kara by the hair. And then Tommy ends up shooting him with uh, some So he went on the wall, it had a thing that said non-lethal or something like that. Yeah. So I'm assuming it was like a, a beanbag or a rubber bullet. Yeah. Something like that. But she should have already been dead. He had her by the hair. He should have like sieved her head through those bars by then. Yeah. I mean, she was screaming like he was trying to. But then that would have taken us back into Friday the 13th territory. It would have. Yeah. Like Jason would do shit like that, but Michael wouldn't. But he's going to. (laughs) He's going to. You're about to tell him that what he does. Yeah, that's true. You're right. You're right. And we get, you know, we get more... Oh, time padding here of them walking through a long corridor. Um, they end up getting into this other hallway where they see a bunch of doctors gathered around. Some of them still dressed in their ceremonial garb, which when when then comes up and he's like, "Take that off! It's not Halloween anymore." <laughs> um, well, that that cut came in apparently because when uh, Miramax saw the costumes, or was it a cod? One of them hated them mm-hmm. and like had a full blown rant about it mm-hmm. in front of everyone to uh, the director. Yeah, and so they cut a bunch of that shit out. 
So they follow these doctors and end up in this room where they're basically going to go see what they're doing. And then there's a room between those two rooms where Danny and the baby are being held. And Tara actually acts the way I would act. And she automatically goes to pounce and grab them. But Tommy holds her back because Michael is also entering the room at that time. And we see him go to a table full of surgical tools and pick up a machete. It's a surgical machete. I, do those even exist? <laughs> they do here. <laughs> but then we see him enter the room full of doctors and just slaughters the shit out of them. And something I don't understand is it goes into the stro- strobe lighting and it's like, why? You did not give me a flashing lights warning Well, <laughs> at the beginning of this movie. He didn't do anything to the lights. Like no. murdering people just sets it off or something. <laughs> I don't know. This, this is one of those that didn't make, it makes sense and it doesn't make sense. That so, doesn't make sense. Well, apparently <laughs> Michael is friendly with these cult members or he would have slaughtered them all a long time ago, right? Yeah. But these are all cult members that he goes in and kills the shit out of. Yeah. One of them still in his Halloween costume. Yeah. So that doesn't make sense for him to just go in there and just kill them all. Like, yeah. Why? And when who has been pulling the strings and keeping watch over Michael gets killed too. But at the same time, it makes sense where Michael kills everything in his path. Yes. So it fits and it doesn't at the same time. Yeah. I don't. It's just shitty writing. But again, with the original ending that we got in the producer's cut, it went a completely different route and the test audiences didn't like it. They were like, well, there's not enough killing. And it's like, again, don't get teenagers to... I mean, I know that teenagers are your demographic, but they're also not the smartest, so... Well, according to Marianne Hagen that plays uh, Kara, the test audience was full of, well, she said 14-year-old boys, Mm -hmm. full of young people. And I guess when they didn't react favorably to this movie, Miramax freaked out, so... That's why you ended up with a lot of this crap in the theatrical uh, version. Yeah. So they grab the kids and themselves and the doctor, they start running through Michael through this corridor again. And Michael, it, once once Kara and Tommy get through another one of those sliding bar door things, one of the doctors is trapped behind it. And Michael grabs him his head and uses his face to break down the gate. Yeah, uses his so head as a battering ram. That is actually kind of cool. It is cool, but I'll go back to what I said earlier. That's a Jason kill not a michael kill yeah i feel like that's would be more at home in friday the 13th it's still a cool kill but though. that was a reshoot that was not george wilbur mm-hmm. that was the other guy yeah so uh learner something yeah. learner and allegedly that was his dad yeah who the played the doctor yeah so i think he was uncredited though so our group goes and they run and hides in this weird lab room i it's don't the know baby what aquarium it, i don't know what it's supposed to be but yeah we see a bunch of fetuses in these jar or aquarium things i don't i don't know and they've got tags with the weird runes on them yes and signs up with diagrams of the runes and stuff it's it's so it, to me it raised the question like is that the plan that they're trying to replicate Michael. Like, you know, like they're making super soldiers or some shit. I don't know. How many, yeah. How many babies were there before they figured out it needed to be Jamie? Yeah. I don't know. To me, it's just an unnecessary question that they raised. Yeah, it's just more of this thorn bullshit. But Michael does manage to break in and everybody hides except for Tommy. Because at this point, Tommy tries to trick Michael. He's holding, you know, a bundle that looks like the baby. And he's telling him, it's over. You've won. 
And But then the baby cries, giving away that it's not the baby that Tommy has. And Tommy injects Michael in the neck with a bunch of syringes filled with green stuff. So Nickelodeon slime. It's, <laughs> I don't know if it's supposed to be tranquilizer or something because it, it does kind of stun Michael. He roofies him. For a minute. And then Kara takes that opportunity to uh, start beating him with a bat. Meanwhile... Well, it's a pipe. It's a, it's a pipe. Okay. So, meanwhile... Um, Danny's hiding with the baby and Michael does manage to break away and he grabs Kara by the throat and starts choking her. And then I hate this scene. I hate this scene so much I can't stand it because Danny tries to break it up. He tells Michael to leave his mom alone. And so Michael gets distracted and starts heading for Danny and the baby. And Danny starts fucking crying. Like, I feel like they really scared that kid because he is legitimately crying and screaming screaming and I can't handle it. <laughs> I kind of feel like they may have because in well the, the the last two movies, 4 and 5, they made it very clear in in all the production notes and stuff like that in interviews that the actors that played Michael went out of their way to be friendly with Daniel Harris and mm-hmm. and show that this is, you know, it's just uh, make believe and so that they wouldn't scar that child for life. Yeah. To not, you know, she was acting scared. She wasn't really terrified. Yeah. I never saw anything about this. Yeah. About that in this movie. That boy looked like legitimately terrified. That and his kid. cries were were very authentic in, Which, in my opinion. There's directors out there that have done some shady shit to get good performances out of kids. So it would not be unheard of for them to really do that. Yeah. But then, just then, Tommy grabs the pipe and starts to beat the hell out of Michael with it. Oh, he gets medieval on his ass. <laughs> Marcellus Wallace needs to recruit him. <laughs> but Loomis ends up helping Kara and Danny escape. And then Tommy just... Just beats the brakes off of Michael. I mean, he beats him till there's fucking yellow or green goo. Until the goo. green goo starts coming back out. Yeah. Like, yeah, he beats the shit out of him. Why is his blood green? Or is that the drugs he pumped him full of? Like, I'm unclear on that. Why is it coming out his eye holes? <laughs> yeah. That, it's, that doesn't make it's, sense. It's very me. confusing. Like, they haven't been shy about using blood in this movie. So why would they not just show blood there? Yeah. And then, you know, when Tommy's satisfied, he walks off, leaves him. And then we very abruptly cut to Tommy... Kara, Danny, and the baby in Tommy's Jeep and they're and um Loomis standing outside of the Jeep and he's telling him to come come with them and Loomis is like, No, I think I'm gonna hang out here. Got some business to attend to. He's very calm and it's almost like he's making his peace with what's about to happen. So I fucking hate this ending so much because and not because of what it is, because it's it's because you know what happened in real life after and that's that we did end up losing Donald Pleasance after this. This was his final role. So we cut to back in the lab. We see just Michael's mask on the floor and he's gone. And an empty syringe. And an empty syringe. And then we hear Loomis screaming. And it's so sad, guys. It's so sad and heartbreaking. I hate I hate it every time I hate hearing him scream like that. And then we cut back to the Myers house and a jack-o'-lantern lit. And then we cut to in memory of Donald Pleasance. So we Credits watch, roll. Yeah, we watched the theatrical version and we've seen the producer's cut and I guess a spoiler for the producer's cut if you listen to the audio of Donald Pleasant's screaming in that final scene it's the same audio from the, the original cut. scene mm-hmm. yeah that they had originally shot they had to reuse it because Donald Pleasant's passed away before they did the reshoots yes because there was like a year I think between the time that they started filming this movie and the time that they actually released it like they got tied up with so 
much stuff with uh, litigation and whether there was going to be an injunction against the movie being released because of the dispute between, I guess, Miramax and the Akkads and all that stuff. That Anyway, that's why it's exactly the same screen. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed or not. And the producer's cut, I, I don't like either ending, I'll be honest. Yeah. I feel like Loomis should have gone out one of two ways. Either give him a heroic death mm-hmm. or let him win. Something. I mean, he can't win against it, Michael Myers, so at the very least, give him a heroic death. Either way, it felt like the movie went out on a, in a whimper. And they didn't do that in either version. Yeah. Because in the producer's cut, what, he gets the thorn tattoo on his wrist and he becomes the keeper yeah, of Michael Myers. Yeah, and that's Myers. what I was talking about earlier when Wynn was setting him up to be a successor. And in the producer's cut, that's basically what it is, is that he's setting Loomis up to take over as Michael's keeper, essentially. Yeah. And Tommy had stopped him with his magical bag of runes. And then he, uh, Michael wakes up, swaps bodies with Wynn and escapes. So, yeah. yeah. it's This movie had a lot of problems, Daniel Ferrans, he, he probably wrote a good script, but looking over some of the notes and stuff from interviews and things that he did, the movie that he wrote, it's not the one that we got in either cut. Mm-hmm. He uh, didn't seem to be happy with any of them. Mm-hmm. Clearly, the audiences were not happy with them. Critics weren't happy with them. A good portion of that was because they didn't get Daniel Harris to come back as Jamie Lloyd. They didn't want to pay her. Basically, they told her she was a scale character. I don't know what that means. And after she'd gone through all the trials, she was 17, mm-hmm. and they wanted an adult so that they could shoot at night and not do school and all this other shit. She went through a lot of bullshit too, like emancipating herself yeah, she and went spending that whole a lot of money. Legal process. Yeah. And from what I've seen in the interviews with her, because she's talked about it several times, all she, the, the money she was asking for was just enough to cover the legal fees that she mm-hmm. had paid mm-hmm. to be able to do it. So she was almost going to be doing it for free. Like she was just trying to break even and they wouldn't do it. Yeah. And that's And plus, just Jamie got such a shitty death. She did. And, and, and I think in the same, it might have been the same interview that she didn't like the script anyway. So she finally just walked away from it. Yeah. And uh, the actress who plays Jamie, she got a lot of hate for that because they thought that she had replaced her. Well, they, they had to cast somebody. But Yeah, it's not her fault, but it, I don't particularly like J.C. Brandy's performance, but it wasn't her fault what happened. No. She was just, you know, she was given a job and she did her job. But the fans shit on her. Yeah. Because they took it very personally that Daniel Harris wasn't in there. Yeah. And whether you love or hate the Rob Zombie films, I will give him that he righted that wrong for her by allowing her to come back in his films. Well, she said that in one of the interviews that she feels like if she had been in this one, maybe she would not have been able to be cast in the the later zombie movies. Right. So she thinks, I don't know if she's saying it's fate or whatever, but she feels like it kind of worked out the way it it should have. Yeah. But So Travis... (sighs) There's a ton of notes on this. I'm not going to go into all of it, but the, the whole writing, filming, producing, editing, this whole movie was a complete mess. Yeah. And I don't, nobody was really happy with the final product. Yeah. What did you think about it? What do you think about it? I don't hate it as much as I did when I first watched it. Um, I definitely found more holes in it than I realized before. I still, I still like Paul Rudd's performance, even though I, I poke fun at how he delivers his lines and stuff. Now it's just funny. If it was any other actor, I wouldn't, it would annoy the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. But because it's him, I just think it's funny and I yeah. move on. I feel like for the most part, the Michael we get here, his kills, the way he stalks people, is better mm-hmm. in this one than it was in the previous two movies. But there's still some elements where you're doing a really good Michael Myers appearing out of the dark and killing and silently moving away. And then all of a sudden we inject some Friday the 13th bullshit in there that has no place. Story doesn't make sense to me really at all. It's an incoherent mess is it what it just, is. Well, that's, you know, the producer was just kind of making it up as he went along. And apparently the only, re- he didn't want to do this movie. In an interview with uh, Marianne Hagen, she even stated that he the only reason he did this movie is because he got a, it was part of a three 
movie deal with Miramax. And one of the movies had to be this one. And if you look at his filmography, his next two movies were Miramax movies. Who is this? The director. Oh, okay. So it's it's another situation, kind of like Five, where people who made it didn't really give a shit. Yeah. And it's sad because it, it could have had potential. I feel like they had a better cast in this one than we got in Five. They just needed a better story and it could have been good. I Even though I like this one better than the last two that we watched. You like it better in part four? I think so. I just, I could not get past how much I didn't like Michael in part four. Mm. Okay. The two Michaels and the stupid shoulder pads. I just couldn't. Even though this is still technically bulky Michael. (laughs) Yeah, but he's not wearing hockey pads underneath his jumpsuit. Yeah. Maybe. uh, Wilbur's just a bigger dude. Yeah. And they, and and that's okay. They just let him do it, which felt more natural to me. I think for me, when you have a title character like Michael Myers, if you don't get him right, I'm not going to like the movie at all. Like I'm not even going to try I will say the mask was definitely miles better in this one. The mask was better. I feel like the way he behaved was better. It was more in keeping with what you expect from Michael from part one. Not exactly. Still not Nick Castle but it was better than what we got in the last two. But I'll, I'll, I'll stay with my position that I've had on the last two. If you skip this movie, you're not missing anything. Like, if you want to watch it just to watch it, okay. It's not one I'd spend money on to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, it, if you're already subscribing to Netflix or something like that and it shows up on there, go for it. But you don't lose anything as far as lore or anything like that by missing this movie. You can skip all three movies in, this, in the Thorn trilogy and I don't feel like you're losing out on Halloween. If you want to watch a good Halloween movie, watch the first one and be done. Yeah. What about you? Um, I'm with you on that. Like, if you wanted to just eliminate the Thorn trilogy altogether. I do really like love part four. But if you just take out the Thorn trilogy and watch part one and two and then go to H2O where it makes sense, that's it continues from those two stories. And three. Well, three's not brought up in H2O well, at all. No, it's not. But I'm just saying as far as Halloween movies go. Yeah. One, two, three, and H2O. But you could also eliminate part three as much as I love it and go one, two, one, two, H2O. Because then that's a more linear it is. story. It is. But I just think, I still think that three is worth a watch. Well, but yeah, out, absolutely. outside of this storyline, it's worth a watch. Yeah, absolutely. This was one I, I was a <laughs> I was a sympathizer with, I guess, because it was one that I used to put on and I would really enjoy it a lot. But like I said, going through it this time, it just it just feels sad more than anything now. It's still not a bad movie. As, as far as those movies go, it's not anywhere in the caliber of the original two films, obviously, or even part four or part three. But it's still not terrible. If you're a completionist, sure, watch it. And there are a lot of people who do love this movie. Like I said, it does have a good atmosphere and it does have some memorable moments in it for sure. And if nothing else, just to see Donald Pleasance's last performance, which I do feel is very sad, but I don't know. It's still worth a watch, I guess, for me. Yeah, and I think that if you're going to watch one of the renditions of this movie and you are a Donald Pleasance fan you definitely want to watch the producer's cut instead because I guess Miramax had them cut a bunch of his scenes out because they said it was boring yes so Donald Pleasance is this franchise so yeah if you're going to watch it because you like Donald Pleasance his his acting and the way he he plays this character definitely watch the producer's cut instead just because they cut so much of his stuff out yeah for sure it's still I mean I will say that the producer's cut does tend to make a little bit more sense. There's more cohesion to the narrative, but it's still not a great movie. It's just not. 
No. It tones down the gore, I think, quite a bit. There was one, I'm trying to think, you get the magic rune stones that somehow freeze Michael in place in the hospital at the end, and instead of Jamie dying on the corn thresher, the man in black shoots her in the head while she's in the hospital, something like that. So there are some differences in there, some of them very, very big differences between mm-hmm. the two. The whole last act is completely different. Completely different, but I don't know. I, and we've been pretty rough on these. I, I know I have. I've been pretty rough on them. So I just want to say, if you watch these movies and you love these movies, then just love these movies. Yeah, to uh, each their own. Don't, we're don't not going to bash you for liking it. We're shaming or ripping on no, anybody for liking no. these movies. we're not dicks, guys. We're if just you giving you some, our opinion. Yeah, if you find something you like, then like it. Yeah. Go for it, because I like some shitty movies, and I will admit That it. you do. I do. I like some <laughs> shitty movies and so if you like them great I'm, yeah. I'm glad this is the thing that works for you and i'm not saying that in a condescending way yeah no not at all i like talladega nights and it is not a good movie <laughs> i will freely admit that yeah there that's why we have so many subgenres and 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 different monsters and different things like this this is a genre that brings us all together you know we all have this shared love of this of horror so yeah that's you know nobody all wants to like the same thing but you know i said so, we're just giving our opinion it's not gospel yeah. or anything if you've listened to all three of our spoiler reviews on these on the thorn trilogy and you still haven't seen these movies go watch them anyway yeah go watch yeah. them anyway make up your own mind exactly you may find something that we didn't you may take something out of it that we didn't exactly horror is subjective you may love them or you might say that we didn't shit on them quite enough <laughs> It could go either way. Because, again, there are people out there that really, really love these movies. Yeah. And there are people out there that flat hate them. Yeah. So, I don't, I, I don't like them, but, you know, next year, October, if you say, hey, we're going to do a Halloween marathon, I'm still going to watch them. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I'll make fun of them just like I always do. <laughs> Only now I'll be more detailed because I've done the research. Right. I can make fun of them in HD. <laughs> And on that, guys, we're going to call it a night because it is very late. But I'll give a quick shout out to our content creators of the week. And I'm going to go a different route this time. I've been plugging YouTube from Jump. And this time I'm going to go into another venue and plug our first podcasters. And through going through this Halloween series, I've mostly brought up people who live, breathe, and love this series. And it's going to be no different this week because there's a few people I know that really, really love Halloween. Not necessarily the entire series, but they love Halloween. And those are Travis and my good friends over at the Podmortem podcast. I think we've brought them up in just about every episode in some form or fashion, but Renee, JP, and Travis, not my Travis, another Travis, but they love Michael Myers. It's, it's their favorite horror movie. Well, depending on the day, they might tell you Texas Chainsaw Massacre another day. Mm, JP's gonna tell you Chucky. <laughs> No, JP would tell you Evil Dead, but... But, That's not a slasher. <laughs> at any rate, please go check out their podcast. They're great. We we are so happy to call them friends, and they never fail to make us laugh every week. So get over, check out their reviews on Halloween and Halloween too, because they are so much more serious about it than we are, and can probably tell you way more than we could. We're not going to cover those films in their entirety. So head over to their podcast, give them a listen, tell them that Dead Married sent you. <laughs> That's a shameless plug. <laughs> but next week we'll be back with, are we getting to H2O now? I think you're going to make me watch, watch uh, Josh Hartman. Yeah, you've been dreading this one. <laughs> I have. 
And, and it's not against him. I just don't like him in this movie. Like in the faculty, he's fine. We've in got 30 Days of Night, he's fine. But he's got no business being in a Halloween movie. <laughs> and we've got one more episode of Spooky Season or for, of Spooktober after that, our monthly episode of Pillow Talk, where we're basically going to talk about what we've enjoyed about this Halloween watching experience. So be sure to check that out at the end of the month. But until next time, guys. Bye. Hello, Deadites. Quick reminder that you can find us on the interwebs. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as SpookyMom83 and Travis on Twitter as TravisL80 and find our official page on Instagram and Twitter at Dead and Married. If you have any questions or suggestions for us, email us at deadandmarried at yahoo.com. See ya. John, we're, John, bleh. I have a sad life, guys. No, you don't. <laughs> I'm Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, it was directed by J- Joe, I almost said Dave Chappelle. Oh, he might have done a better job. Sac- s- uh, ceremony. Well, ow! Oh! It hit my elbow. <laughs> There's a table there. <laughs> ow! Grobe. Not Grobe. Donald Loomis is this franchise, okay? Donald Loomis? Did now I got, say Donald Loomis? You did. Now I've got you doing it. <laughs> Now you can't keep his name Donald straight either. Donald Pleasance. Oh, no, 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 really, really, you're too good to me, really. No, thanks for putting me in the middle of this cheap shit country bumpkin outfit, Paul. I really appreciate it. My fans expect better than this.